we believe that um, there's value in us as individuals making that commitment to relationship. We call it intentional relationship. That's why we do community groups. But we believe it's important for us as a church as well to be connected to other local churches. We believe that Sound City Bible Church is not the, the greatest thing on earth, is not the only show going on in town. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? We're, we're part of this kingdom of God. We're part of this, this family of God. And so we have lots of relationships as, as the leaders and as, as staff members with churches throughout the Seattle area and actually really throughout the United States and even around the world. But one of the things that's really cool is we have had an opportunity to partner as a church uh, with a church network called the Sojourn Network. And you've probably heard us talking about this for, well, the better part of the last year. Well, I'm happy to announce this last week that our adoption process into the network is final and we are officially a member of the Sojourn Church Network. Yeah, that's cool, right? And, and, and again, that's, that's important for us because we believe it's important to be intentionally invested in relationship. And so you'll learn more about what that means as far as being a part of a network. It doesn't mean that we somehow lose our autonomy or they're like the boss of us or something like that, uh, as my kids would say. But it does mean that we're accountable. It does mean that we're uh, in relationship. And it does mean we get to partner together. And actually, if you'd be praying this next week, um, two of the board members of the Sojourn Network are actually flying out to, to meet with uh, some Seattle area pastors for a variety of reasons this week, and we're hosting it all at our, uh, at our offices. So you guys could just be praying that these meetings and things this week go well, and that God's uh, spirit does what he wants to do among the, the hearts of pastors really throughout the whole Puget Sound region. So you guys could be praying for us. If you want more information about Sojourn Network, you can contact us or look it up on our website as well. And then, speaking of relationship, um, it is my distinct privilege today to introduce to you uh, my good friend, Darren Larson. So Darren uh, is a pastor of Imprint Church in Woodenville, uh, the Far East, Woodenville, and he uh, and I have gotten to know each other over the last couple of years. We actually had him and his staff team came over back at our old Shoreline location. We had lunch together uh, almost two years ago, a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, since then, we've, we've partnered together on, on various things, just in terms of relationally. And then uh, last year, about a year ago, he invited me to come over and preach at, Wooden, uh, at Imprint Church in Woodenville, so I did. Uh, and he asked me to preach in the book of Philippians, which at the time we were doing Hebrews. And he said, let's preach from Philippians. And I was like, thank you. That is like a softball right down the middle of the plate. It was easy. And then I said, hey, I need to return the favor. So I'm going to have him come over and preach on a really negative passage in the book of Judges. So uh, you're welcome, bro. I love you. That's how much I love you. Uh, we are, I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit more, but Imprint Church is about four and a half years old now, right? And uh, man, by God's grace, just doing really, really well. Been thankful to see uh, just that relationship grow and flourish. And so what I'd like to invite you to do, if, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to the book of Judges, chapter 8. Uh, I'm going to invite Ashton to come. She's going to read our scripture for the day. Our New Testament reading is actually from 2 Timothy 4. You'll see how that ties in together in a minute. So she's going to read the scripture, and then I'm going to invite Darren to come and open up God's word for us from Judges chapter 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. Hey, everyone. How are you doing today? 
As Pastor Aaron said, I'm Darren, grateful to be here. It's fun reading like the end of 1 Corinthians and you notice in there, uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, those the churches in Asia send their greeting. And so in some ways, the church in Woodenville sends its greeting to you guys. Great to, great to be here. I'm really grateful to partner together. And like Aaron said, I've known him for a couple years and been able to have him over at our church. And so I'm grateful to be able to be here this morning as well. Um, you know, Aaron asked me to share a little bit about, my, about myself before we get rolling. So uh, the secret sauce to sermons, you got to have uh, logic credibility and emotion and connected to it. And I can do the, uh, the whole thing of adding some of those things with credibility and all that kind of stuff as best I can by introducing myself to you. And so the best thing I can say about myself is that God's grace has saved me, my life and brought me into a relationship with Jesus. And I've been able to see him grow my life over the past 40 years of my life. And so I'm really grateful for his grace. And if I was to define myself in any way, shape, or form, it would be God's grace. It's sufficient for me and for all that he's done for my family as well. So um, far be it for me to tell you about things I've accomplished or anything like that because it's all a matter of God's grace. All is grace. Amen to that. You know, I planted a church, like Aaron said, in Woodenville in 2012, and uh, we started with about 50 people, and to see God grow it to about seven staff members now, and uh, we're planning a church next year, which is wonderful as well. Um, we have a guy on our staff who's come on board to, to plant a church, hopefully kind of in the North Creek area, maybe it'd be a neighbor of you guys up here as well as we partner together for the gospel. And just to see God do great things through a church is really an amazing piece of uh, just the story that God has in my life. I married my college sweetheart in 1999 because I convinced her the world was ending at Y2K, and uh, she believed me. So this is my family. Uh, Kelly's my wife's name. I have two kids, Bethany, who's my 13-year-old redhead, and Zachary, who's my 10-year-old. They are just fantastic people. They're my favorite people in the world, and I'm so grateful that God brought them into my life as well. Um, I got into ministry by accident, actually. I, I grew up in Port Orchard, Washington, if you know where that's at. And I wanted to be a firefighter, but I attended Multnomah Bible College in Portland, and I got involved in a church plant there called River West Church. And through the ministry of that church over the years that I was there, I got to experience God's grace through church planting in that environment. And they started out, same um, as you guys here, actually in a school there at uh, Wilson High School in Portland. And uh, I was the youth, because I was the youngest guy in the church, uh, youth guy, and I was the music guy. And so I did a lot of music for them as well. And I uh, watched that church, by God's grace, grow from um, a really small church to exceedingly doing well. They're a great church now in Lake Oswego, Oregon, and God's been gracious to them. But really, it planted the seed in me for church planting, and that's been really wonderful to kind of see that happen. And so really, by accident, jumping into church ministry, watching a mentor of mine um, down at Lake Oswego, Oregon, really mentor me and walk with me through life is why I did what I'm doing today. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to, uh, like I said, Multnomah there and Western Seminary as well in Portland. And then I attended Wheaton College Graduate School in Wheaton, Illinois as well, which was great. And so I know we complain about the weather a lot here, but you've probably never lived in the Midwest because if you have, you'd be happy with today, um, even though it's really horrible, I admit. So, you know, in all my years, I've seen the highs and lows of church ministries. I've, I've felt the joy of success. I've experienced the lows of failure. And you know what? God is faithful in all of it, honestly, whether good or bad, um, whether growth or not growth, uh, you know, success or whatever it is. God can grow his church through success and God can grow his church through failure, but it's his church and I'm grateful to get, be a part of it as well. So today, if I was to give you anything about myself, it's a response to God's grace and what he's done in my life through the years, and I'm filled with gratitude for what he's done. So I, I'm grateful to get a chance to share God's word with you today. So as Aaron says, we're in Judges chapter 8, and so let's change gears into something kind of awesome, all right? How many 
of you guys have seen uh, the Christopher Nolan movie, The Dark Knight? Have you seen that movie before? I don't know if you're like me. I, I, I wasn't a huge comic book guy growing up, but I love the comic book movies. I, I see all of them. I'm just into them. There's a scene at the end of the best of the Batman movies, The Dark Knight there. And it's, I hope I don't ruin it for you if you've not seen this before. But if you haven't seen this, you're not humaning well. So uh, you can fix that later. Um, but famously, there's uh, this part at the end of The Dark Knight where the Joker is kind of at his demise there which he played a great part with Heath Ledger playing that. And the hope of Gotham, Harvey Two-Face Dent, did not turn out to be the hero that Gotham was going to need. And so, uh, unfortunately, at the very end of the movie, this tragic scene happens where Batman tumbles down with uh, Harvey Two-Face Dent uh, down a, a cavern. It ends up on the ground. It kills Harvey Dent, and Batman's down there. So Commissioner Gordon goes running down after them to see how everything's going. And uh, he sees Batman there and sees Dent's body. And in that moment, he realizes that Gotham's hero was a facade and he realized all of Gotham's hopes were gone. And so he says something at that moment to Batman, who's recovering from the fall. And Commissioner Gordon says, The Joker won. All of Harvey's prosecutions, everything he's fought for is undone. Whatever chance you gave of fixing our cities dies with Harvey's reputation. We bet it all on him. The Joker took the best of us and tore it down. And people will lose hope now. And Batman replies, They won't. They must never know what he did. Gordon says, five men are dead and two of them cops, and you can't sweep that up. And the Batman says, no, but the Joker cannot win. So Batman crouches to Dent's body, and Batman turns Dent's head so the good side of Harvey Two-Face is upward. And he says, looks at Gordon, he says in that moment, kind of in that Batman voice, he says, Gordon, you, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. You remember that? Remember that scene in the movie? I put it up here because I said it in the Batman voice, you know, and so a couple really amazing things about that. Number one, wasn't it surprising to you that Joker or the Batman was a smoker? That was kind of surprising to me. I didn't take him to be the type, honestly. Um, But the other crazy thing is the scene reminds me of what we are unpacking today in Judges chapter 8, honestly. The hero that Gotham deserves and not the one it needs, where Batman becomes the dark knight in that moment. And unfortunately, what he says about himself here is true of the story of Gideon's life as well. This is going to sound morbid to you, but I kind of wish the story of Gideon ended with him dying the hero because we get to live to see him become, unfortunately, the villain. This is unfortunate because I was so rooting for him in Judges 6 and 7. You've been in there as well. In fact, every time a judge pops up in Judges, which is seven major times throughout the book of Judges, I kind of hope this will be the ultimate redeemer that will show up for the people of Israel. If you can remember, picture that moment of kind of reading Judges for the first time. The hope would be like every time this redeemer raises up, you're like, maybe this is the one. Maybe finally they got it right, but you know the cycle because you've read the end of the book, or at least you've heard Pastor Aaron talk about it before. And we know the whole theme of Judges and with the very last verse of Judges, which shows up a couple times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And unfortunately, that is the story of Judges and the history of the Judges as well. However, this certainly sets up anticipation and desire for a good king in Israel, doesn't it? A king that will lead the people with truth and justice and integrity. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the whole Old Testament is a failed experiment in finding the leader that Israel needs. And they don't see it until Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 1, 1, where it starts off with the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who is the son of David. The son of David. Finally, the king showed up. The king we've been waiting for. The one who can come and make everything right. It's a resounding, Israel's got a new king now, and it's the king you've always 
hope for. But today we actually learn from one of the flawed heroes of Judges. This is the fourth and final of the Gideon series here at Sound City Bible Church, and I'm grateful Aaron's invited me to be a part of it. You've heard all kinds of things. You've heard how the story of how God, how, uh, how God drew Gideon unto ministry to deliver the children of Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And for seven years, they faced invasions from the Midianites, the Amalekites, and these other Akite people, eastern foreigners that show up within the context of the Old Testament. And for seven years, they were just oppressed as people. And so God kept raising up these judges, and Gideon gets to become one of these judges who comes in and saves the people for a time. God hears the cries of his people, regardless of whether they were following him or not, and he would deliver them in a gracious way. You heard about Gideon's struggles and his fears of his calling and questioning whether God would come through him or not as well in Judges 6, 11 through 14. You heard about Gideon's struggles as well in the midst of actually trying to figure out how he was going to fight a huge battle of 135,000 Midianites. And so he decided to do the very wise thing of grabbing 300 men who lapped water. I got to hear Aaron's sermon last week on that, which was wonderful. And then Gideon defeats these Midianites in such a weird way. Instead of using swords, Gideon comes at them with trumpets and jars that become his weaponry. Such a weird thing to read in the Bible, if you heard that before. In fact, I, I thought as I, I played the trumpet as a third and fourth grader in my elementary school years, and I was horrible at it. I learned after I got along after a little while, but I remember my poor parents when they first started hearing me play this thing, and I kind of wonder if that kind of happened in the midst of this, because you know, Gideon's handing out trumpets to all these people who probably don't know how to play the trumpet, and so they start blowing these trumpets on the hillside and surrounding these people, the Midianites. And I can only imagine that one Midianite wakes up from his tent and just hands his brother a sword and says, just put me out of my misery. It's over with. I just need your help right now. And maybe that's how the whole thing happened. But we pick up the whole story here at the conclusion of the seventh chapter of Judges here, where Gideon sends word of his victory to Israel and the Midianites are fleeing from him and from the battle. And he sends these messengers to the hill country of Ephraim to his Israelite brothers and asks them to come to his aid in the work of dispatching the rest of the Midianites and the rest of the enemies who are fleeing from this god-awful sound of trumpets going off around them. So Ephraim comes out and they take over some land where the enemy was fleeing and they capture the two princes of Midian and they kill them both is what we pick up on in chapter 7. But then the story picks up in chapter 8 when things calm down. The men of Ephraim come to Gideon and they express some displeasure in him for not involving them in the midst of the battle in that way. You see, Gideon chose 300 men by God's choice in that way, and they took out 90% of the Midianite army and, and in the middle of the night with those trumpets and torches. And the rest of Israel was like, why wasn't I on this? I would love to have been part of that battle. And so they come at Gideon and tell him those things. And we know that the main reason why is because it wasn't Gideon's battle really after all, was it? It was actually God's battle, and God defeated the Midianites and not Gideon in that way. But the tension we face this week is that things change in chapter 8 pretty dramatically for Gideon. Now that the battle is over and victory has been secured, Gideon is forced to face the greatest trial of his life. Surely this peaceful farmer who had been called by God to be his warrior thought that his greatest battles were behind him here, but little did Gideon know that the greatest battles of his life were actually still in front of him. Because in Judges 8, we actually find this out. We move from God's battle to Gideon's battle. And it is an intense thing that we're going to see today. 
You see, Gideon's study of how quickly a person can move from faithful to unfaithful as they turn from zealously giving God credit for the victory over all things in their life, pursuing God's mission, his glory, to zealously pursuing their own ambition and pride, succumbing to fear and revenge in Gideon's case here, and ultimately finding failure in that way. So we're going to read chunks of Judges chapter 8 today and see what the story is and see if we can apply it to our own lives because I think you'll see yourself in this story of Gideon. So let's read just the first three verses here in Gideon, of Gideon's story in Judges 8 verses 1 through 3. It says this, Then a man of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight with Midian. And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What I have done now is compar- in comparison with you. Uh, Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grapes harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? So their anger subsided against him when he said these things. See, what happens here is Gideon sues their bitterness with them and with, against him with some smooth words and some wicked diplomacy here is what he does. He kind of says, oh man, I haven't done anything compared to you capturing the princes of Midian. And then he uses this thing about like kind of, you can picture it this way, you're the man. No, you're the man. It's kind of what happened there. You know, like you guys are Ephraim. I, I'm nothing. I'm just Abiezer. Why would you care about me in any way, shape, or form? And so then in verse 4 and following, Gideon and the 300 men cross over the Jordan pursuing the rest of these Midianites, in particular the two kings of Midian who are there. And when they get over the river, Gideon runs into some men of Succoth who come to him, or he goes to and asks for bread for his own men. And Gideon had a lot of reason to uh, consider that they would give him bread and encourage him because the 12 tribes of Israel had kind of an agreement going on together that in times of national danger they would rally protect each other in some way. But the Succoth officials refuse to give provisions to Gideon army, army at all. But not only that, they do something worse. They actually taunt Gideon in the process of that. So not only does he have to work some diplomacy out at the beginning of this story, um, he has to deal with taunting from his own people. In fact, Judges 8, 6, it says, The officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? In other words, like, where are these guys? You're telling us all these great stories you're doing, and this just ticks Gideon off, honestly, is what happens here. So Gideon says this in Judges 8, 7, Well, then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Nice guy, huh? Sounds pretty amazing here. Then it happens with some other people Gideon runs into his too. The men of Penuel in Judges 8, 8 through 9. Gideon is steaming mad at this point. He tells them he's going to come back and break their tower down because they wouldn't give him bread and care for them. In, other words, in, in, in that way, too. In other words, he's kind of saying, like, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home is what he's doing, right? Like, leave me alone. I'm going to do my own thing in that way. And you can almost feel the tension of this thing. But this is the man who hasn't fought a battle yet, or at least his battle was really unique, right? He's blowing trumpets and holding up torches. That's not much of a fight, if you're asking me. But he's then picking and threatening on his own people in that way. Despite this, Gideon continues to pursue the kings of Midian. He catches up with them, captures them, and sends their army panicking and packing away from them. So with kings in tow, Gideon comes back to his own men of Succoth and Penuel, whom he had threatened earlier, and we're going to pick up the story there in Judges 8, verse 13 and following, and see what happens. It says this, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. 
And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna. You were picking on me about before, I, I, I got them now. They're with me, right? About whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel, and he killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so they were. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise up and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Whoa. Did you see what happened here? Did you catch the story? Gideon brings the kings back, parades them in front of the men of Succoth and Penuel, and then he says, he, and the Bible says that he taught the men a lesson in terms of the things that they had taunted him about. Here's my question for you. When did God command this? When did God tell Gideon to go back and fight his own men and to teach them a lesson, as the Bible says? Do you find some irony in those words, teach them a lesson? Gideon and his army punished the officials by using thorns and briars. And I know that sounds kind of weird to us today because we don't use punishment in terms of thorns and briars these days. But let's think about our context. Think something like waterboarding, if you will. Gideon's literally torturing these men before the other people because of the things that they did to him, mostly picking on his reputation, mostly saying things about him that drove him crazy and made him angry. And so he wanted revenge for those things that they said. I did read one commentator this week, to be fair, that said that the reason why Gideon did this is because the men of Succoth were actually Israelites by birth, but they were, quote, Midians in their, Midianites in their hearts, is what he said. I think he's trying to soften the blow a little bit for what Gideon was doing, but I honestly don't want to do that today because I honestly think that Gideon did this in his own strength and power in something opposed to what God would have wanted him to do instead. And the crisis of that is it became not God's battle anymore, but it became Gideon's battle, and a battle he was not fighting very well. While Succoth and Penuel were probably stupid in their opposition to Gideon, he is hoping here to humiliate them, and he wants revenge. Well, after he takes out and deals with the city and these people, Gideon's zealous revenge turns to Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian, what we read here. And did you catch the detail, a crazy detail in this story? We didn't necessarily know why he was pursuing these guys until you finally find out when he questions them about these men. And we find out what happens here is that Gideon is angry with the Midianites because they had actually killed his brothers. Did you see that in the text? And so Gideon's angry, and so he pursues these guys in that way. He's personally offended. He's personally connected. He becomes consumed with vengeance in this way. I think he's in some ways less concerned that these men have orchestrated seven years of violence against the Israelite people. Instead, that he attacked, these men attacked his family. He makes it about him 
and not about God's battle. He makes it about his personal vendetta and not what God had called him to do instead. And we find out in the details of this book. What a tragedy as you read the end of the story of Gideon. Interestingly, though, God, through Gideon, still accomplished what he promised he would all the way back in chapter 6, which you read a few weeks ago, that Midian is now defeated and Israel is delivered from their oppression, but all, unfortunately, does not end well. So the question becomes, how does this apply to our lives? How does this apply to our lives today? Why would we study the story of Gideon in such detail? And I would say to you, it's this. This is both good and bad news for us in some ways. I think, honestly, the implication here that we should know and we should think about, and you may have heard this saying before, but I see it in Gideon and Gideon's life, and it's this principle right here, that God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. Have you heard that saying before? I don't know where it came from. I looked this week on the internet because the internet is the queen and prime minister and king of all things that's supposed to be true, right? So I had to find out where exactly this came from. And there's all kinds of ideas about where this came from, whether it came from Luther or a reformer or something like that. The point is the saying is very old, but I like the principle in this, that God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. And what I mean by this is the fact that God can use people for his purposes that even do it in the wrong motivation. And that's really interesting for me as I think about this. And the reason why it's good and bad news is because it's good news because it means that God can use you and me, right? Because the truth of the matter is, when we look at Gideon, we're so quick to point fingers and say, I would never do that. But then we start to evaluate our own lives and think, oh, actually, when have I moved from this is God's thing to this is my thing? And how quickly have I done that before? When I've seen God come through, how quickly do I set aside the fact that God came through and think it's about my own strength, talent, whatever it is? And how quickly does it become that in our own lives as well? You know, what's interesting is the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us this. It tells us that we're all crooked sticks is what it says. It says every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans chapter 3. We've read that before. And it's interesting because when we recognize that about ourselves, we can honestly take hope in the story of Gideon because we can pick on him, say all those bad things that he has done, but then we can point our fingers at ourselves and say, but think about my life. Think about the things that I've done, good or bad, and has God used me in the midst of my own brokenness as well? Have you asked yourself that question before? It's why a God can use a pastor who has a moral failure, and not everything that person says has to be regarded, disregarded. God can still use that person. It's why our evangelism efforts of telling people about Jesus, though weak, and though sometimes we even feel like I don't know enough to share the gospel with my friend, if God can use Gideon friends, he can use your weak evangelism effort, Right? Or your, quote, weak evangelism effort in telling people about himself and the grace of God in your life. That's a great news for us. Because when I read the story of Gideon, I'm so bummed that he didn't die in the battle of the Midianites as a hero. And yet maybe God wanted us to hear the rest of the story. The story of God's grace that can show up in our lives too in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our jealousy, in the midst of our crisis and still use us as well. However, it can be bad news and that some people can use it as an excuse too. 
We can start to use excuses like, I'm not perfect and I can do what I want to do because God can just use me anyway. And we use that as a license to sin in whatever way we want to and think, oh, I can just do these things and God will be okay with that. And it can lead us down a very dark path if we do that. In fact, it certainly does for Gideon, as we see here, and we'll see it more in just a second. This actually brings us to verse 22 in Judges. Let's read just a few more verses in Judges 8, 22 and following and see what happens at the end of this story here. It says this, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, and the Lord will rule over you. Verse 24, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give you them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Let's stop there. After this amazing victory over the Midianites, the people suggest that Gideon rule over them as their king. Gideon smartly refuses this cry, doesn't he? You notice that here. Not me, not my family, that we're not going to rule over you. But then he does something really interesting. And if you know this story, you know the, the backdrop behind this story, you know it is a problem. He collects all the gold from the spoil, roughly 40 pounds, just as Aaron did to make the golden calf back in Exodus. It's supposed to hearken that in our minds as we hear this story. And then he makes an ephod out of the gold that he receives. Now, this may sound strange to you, an ephod. What the heck is an ephod, right? I don't even know what that thing is. But an ephod was a vest that was especially made for inquiring of God by the priest, The priest was commanded to make it back in Exodus 28, and God gave very specific commands to Israel on how to make this and how it was supposed to be only for the priests to wear. It was to be worn during their ministry at the tabernacle or at the temple later. Here's the point. It wasn't Gideon's job to make an ephod to begin with. It was the job of the priest. So here Gideon turns down the request to be king, but instead what does he do? He says, I want to be the direct mediator between you and God. He says that by building this ephod. I want to be priest, high priest in your life, is what he says. And in making a copy of an ephod, placing it in his own hometown, Gideon essentially sets up a place of worship here. He wants people to come to him for guidance. He wants people to recognize his hometown as being the most important place in Israel's history and to see this place as the place where God is found. This is a problem. This is a problem for what Israel had been commanded by God. Because back in chapter 7, Gideon knew his weaknesses, understood that victory to the Midianite people could only be God's grace, and he worships and he honors God there. But when success comes at him, when he does well, he has entirely forgotten that God has called him and won the battle for him. And the people here zealously fail to worship God who delivered them from their oppression. And instead, they build this ephod. They give him all the gold and they allow Gideon here to become their de facto king. Even though he said, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. And the people made him do it anyway. Although we find something unique here. 
In the rest of Judges chapter 8, we find more tragedy where Gideon takes many wives that he has. He takes a concubine in another city like a wealthy king would have done. He has 70, count them all, 70 sons, not including daughters. And out of these 70 sons, what's really interesting that we'll find out about, you'll read about in the next couple weeks, I imagine, he has one son named Abimelech who is mentioned here at the end of chapter 8. He's mentioned for a reason. Do you guys know what the Hebrew word Abimelech means? really interesting. It means my, my dad's the king. <laughs> Wait, he, he's not supposed to be king. That, that's not the thing he's supposed to be. And we find out this ephod that Gideon makes, puts in the city, becomes a snare to the people of Israel, becomes a roadblock between them and God. And ultimately it becomes a thing where they worship and put their hope and trust in Gideon instead of God. The results of this are just devastating for the people. Judges 8, 33 and 34, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barit their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. Wow. Let it sink in for just a second. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. And this is tragic in the book of Judges. You know that. You've been studying it the last several weeks. What does this mean? What does this mean for us? What are the implications of this? I would say this for us today. And it leads me to kind of my second idea here today, and it's this. There is a terrible spiritual danger in success. Isn't that a crazy thought? There's a a terrible spiritual danger in it for it. It's a huge warning for us in Gideon's life and our own. We don't realize that sometimes getting what we want is the worst thing that could ever happen to us. Isn't that a crazy thought? We see it in Gideon's life. He got what he wanted and what did he do? He turned inward to himself and said, man, I must be awesome, right? (laughs) And it's a tragedy. He says, "I, I must be so awesome that people need to come to me to experience God. Because I'm going to build an ephod for myself and put it in my hometown. And I'm going to have everyone come to me for guidance. And what we find is that Gideon's life started so well. Why? Because he was not that successful. He was not that well known. And he needed God to show up, right? And as soon as God shows up, and as soon as he's successful and starts to do things on his own strength and power, what happens? He forgets God who delivered him in the first place, and he forgets that God actually allowed him to have the victory over the Midianites, and he puts all the glory back unto himself. There's sometimes getting what we want is the worst thing that can happen to our spiritual lives. Tim Keller brilliantly says these words, we need to remember that we are saved by grace and we fail but we need to remember it much more when we succeed. Why? Success is not a good teacher. Hard truth here, we tend to learn and grow in persecution and in trials and in pain. If you're facing trials and pain in your life right now, might I encourage you for a second? It might be the best thing that could happen to your spiritual life. I say that knowing various things that are going on in here just by statistics. Some of you may be dealing with the Sickness. Some of you had that cancer diagnosis in your life, and you're like, what did I do to deserve this? Why am I here? Why do I have this? Some of you have such relational difficulties in your life that you can't get past them, and you're struggling in that. And the truth of the matter is, maybe that is a time to not focus so much inwardly, but outwardly on what Jesus is trying to teach you and bring you through, and to help you rely on him for your strength 
and the power that you need to get through. After all, he does say in his word, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, right? There's a piece of our lives which needs to be desperately dependent upon God because if it's not, we tend to put the glory back to ourselves. We just do. I do it. I mean, I, I, I could tell you story upon story where I think, oh man, I did this amazing thing. I must be really good at that. And instead, what if I said, man, this amazing thing happened. God was really gracious to me and allowed me to be a part of it. And I'm so grateful for that. What if you don't build an ephod for yourself symbolically? What if you don't do that? It takes a ton of spiritual maturity to grow in success, friends. It really does. Probably much more maturity than most of us have in this. But ask for grace in this. Gideon told the Israelites that he was going to be their king because God, he wasn't going to be their king because God was their king. But in reality here, Gideon lived like their king. And instead of helping people realize it was God who saved them, God who delivered them, God who did all that work, he takes the credit for it and the victory and asks all the people to bring their spoils from the battle to him so that he can build this thing that people can remember Gideon and his family about. And what we're going to find in the weeks to come, not to steal from the thunder of Aaron who will probably preach on this, is things go really bad for Abimelech, his son. Amazing, amazing story here. We are called as people to remain humble in the midst of success. To have an attitude like John the Baptizer in John 3.30 where he said the words, he must become greater, I must become less. There's no question to me that Gideon ends in zealous, zealous, zealous failure here in Judges chapter 8. And most of us, the problem is, are, can relate to the story of Gideon in some way or shape or form. Now, Here's the final thought I have for you today as we kind of think about closing here, and it's this. Most of you in here are going to be successful. I know that because we live in a really easy place to be successful. I know most of you probably have good paying jobs and your families are doing well and all that kind of stuff. On the outside, you're going to be successful in your life. And I know this doesn't define all of us and we come from various places, but most of us, by virtue of what God has given to us, by his grace for us here in the Western world, we're going to remain successful or be successful at some point. So here is my encouragement to you today. You need to learn to be finish well in the midst of success. You've got to learn to finish well in the midst of success. What does finishing well look like? Go back to that scripture we read at the beginning that we had read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What does that look like for us? Dr. Robert Clinton author and professor of leadership at Fuller Theological Seminary, spent years conducting an extensive research on the lifelong development of Christian leaders. And what he did as part of that in a study of the Bible, he went through the Bible and studied a thousand leaders in the Bible. Most were mentioned only by name in there. These included everything from Old Testament patriarchs to priests to military leaders to New Testament apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors. And sufficient information was available to only find four 49 prominent leaders and analyze how they finished well in the Bible. And the results are absolutely shocking if you've seen this before. He found that only 30% of leaders in the Bible finished well. This means that 70% of the leaders that show up in the Bible fell short of what God wanted them to do in success in their lives. This fact should jolt any of us today as we think about our own lives. And he categorizes four ways they finished with imagery from 2 Timothy chapter 2, or excuse me, in chapter 4. 
And the imagery he has, I want to encourage you to think about today. How are you finishing and how are you going to finish? Are you going to finish, number one, by running the race that God has set for you? Leaders like Abraham, Joshua, Daniel, Peter, and Paul enjoyed this deepening intimacy with God throughout their life. They never stopped learning and growing. While they had setbacks, you think, Peter, really, that guy? Yeah, yeah, he had moments of lapsing, right? But God's grace sustained him and rebuilt him again. And by God's grace, he finished the race running. And they developed into what God wanted them to do. And they completed the task that God had given to them. Or will you finish, number two, walking? Other leaders were slowed down in their ministry because of sin. They fell short of what God intended for their lives. And the ramifications of disobedience caused them to have problems in their lives that were pretty significant. Some of the leaders that you can think of in this category that that Clinton identifies are David, Jehoshaphat, and even Hezekiah. Number three, will you end limping? The leaders that finished the race in poor shape. They were on a decline in the latter phase of their ministry. This may have reflected an inner life where they were dealing with sins internally and the ministry effectiveness. Leaders, Leaders in this category include people like Gideon, who we studied today, Eli, and Solomon. And number four, how about this one? Will you end and finish the race disqualified? Some leaders were taken out of the race prematurely. They were removed from leadership in the Bible by being assassinated in some of their cases, denounced, overthrown. We see that God has removed certain leaders such as Samson, Absalom, and even Ahab because he was not pleased with them. And it's a tragic thing when God regrets placing someone in leadership and for them not to finish well. The price is great here. Personal shame for the leader and some sort of damage to God's kingdom. Here's the principle I want us to remember today, that God wants us to finish well as his people in the midst of success because you're going to be successful. And if you fully cooperate in a shaping work with you, you will have the ability to run the race that he's placed before you successfully and finish well. May we have Paul's passion where he says, I have the, fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Those are good words for us today. See, at the end of Gideon's legacy, we see that there really isn't much legacy at all, in fact, because he failed to finish well, and the state of the nation is precisely what it was before all the good he had done to Israel when Gideon does not finish well in the midst of success. The truth of the matter is, we don't look at Gideon as a hero of the Old Testament because he's not a hero. Do you know what the truth of the matter is? There's only one hero in the Bible, and his name is Jesus. The beautiful picture of Jesus is that he finished well for us. The cool part is that he is the one that gave us the ability to finish well as well in our lives. If you say to me, I I, I don't know if I can finish well, may I encourage you to do something today. Call on Jesus, who the Bible tells us is the author and perfecter of our faith. Author and another word in the NIV, I think, is finisher of our faith. You want to finish well? Turn to Jesus this morning. He can do that. Do you know his final words before he died? Do you remember those words? Jesus said, it is finished. I finished well. Why did I finish well? On behalf of my people because I want them to finish well as well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be no sin. Excuse me, him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This morning, my hope for you is that we learn from the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 8. 
we see some parallels in our own lives to what Gideon went through in his own life, and we find great warning in that, and we turn that warning not to despair, but to hope in Jesus, who finished well for us. And when we call on him today and find him to be the answer to our lives and the help for our lives, we too can finish well. Amen to that, folks? I know we're going to respond in just a second. We do this at our church every week, too. We spend the bulk of our time in our gatherings after the message, worshiping, taking communion, all those things. I think Pastor Aaron's going to set those up in just a second here. But as we turn to those things, my encouragement for you is to ponder Jesus this morning. Think about him. Find warning and encouragement in the story of Gideon, but turn to Jesus as your greatest hope this morning, that he can save you from the mess that you've made in your life. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to pray. As I pray, I think the, the worship band's going to come back up here and join us on the stage. And as we turn to respond to the Lord, my encouragement to you is to find your hope in Christ this morning. My prayer for this sermon has been that Jesus would be known as the, as the perfecter of our faith in here. That Jesus would be known as the one who finished well for our sakes and that we might turn to him and find that we can finish well by his grace as well. Will you pray with me about these things? God, I'm so grateful to get a chance to jump into your word this morning and be able to share with this congregation, brothers and sisters in Christ, that I have the honor of being able to stand in front of this morning. And God, I would pray that you would help us now to take the warning from Gideon in our own lives, to evaluate our lives in our own hearts and ask how are we doing in the midst of success, how are we doing in the midst of failure at times as well, that we'd understand that, God, that you can use us in the midst of those things. That's the beauty of, of the gospel and the beauty of the spirit working in our world. But also, may we take the warning to finish well. And we, may we be people who run, not walk, not limp, not be disqualified. But like, like Paul, may we say that I've fought the fight, I've finished well. I've, I've completed the race and the task that you've given to me. So that I pray for my brothers and sisters in here that we'd be able to do that. And we can only do that through Christ this morning. So we find his words, it is finished, to be enough for our lives as we receive him by faith. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, can we say thank you to our brother Darren for teaching us this morning? Just sat through both the the early service and this one and just found myself just sobered um, by this story and this reminder of how dependent we are on God's grace. And so let's respond to such. We're going to respond in a variety of ways. We're going to respond through the uh, giving of our tithes and offerings. If the volunteers want to go ahead and get started collecting the offerings, uh, we're also going to welcome our younger students in to join us for this time of response. And let me just say this. If you're a guest or a visitor with us at Sound City, you're not obligated to give. Uh, We want to just invite you, if you'd like, to join with us in this act of worship of God. This isn't something we want to do with arm twisting or, or guilt tripping. We want to do this to say, God, you've been so gracious to us. You've been so good to us. Let us give of our, of our finances as an act of worship to you. While they're collecting the offering, and then in a moment they're going to hand out the elements for communion, let me just briefly um, go over a few of these discussion questions. They're printed in your, your weekly handout. We put them up on the website as well. But just some things to kind of help us in our conversations, in our homes, in our community groups this week. So um, encouragement to go back to that passage in 2 Timothy 4 about uh, running the race and finishing well. And, and ask the question, why did uh, Gideon begin to uh, take the battle against the Midianites into his own hands? Uh, talk about success. Why is success so dangerous for our hearts and for our lives in Christ? And even talk about times where you've let success uh, get to your head and and not give God the glory. Uh, Next one, number three. uh, Why does success so easily lead to pride? 
And how can we uh, battle pride when we're successful uh, in business, our leadership, um, even in our morality? Being a really good person can be actually really spiritually dangerous. Uh, number four, since most of us will be, quote, successful, um, how can we learn to grow in our faith even in the middle of success? And how can we help one another? Uh, number five, uh, what does it look like to finish well? How can we encourage each other uh, in that finishing of the race well? And then lastly, uh, in John 19, Jesus says, it is finished. And how can we keep our focus on him above all else? What is it, uh, how can we find hope in Christ's words as we try to finish well? Uh, the volunteers will begin passing out the elements for communion. I'll invite you to hold on to that for now, if you would. And we're going to pray in just a minute. We'll take this together. And let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 to uh, set the stage for the celebration we're about to enter into. The Apostle Paul writes that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus, he took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, I want you to be encouraged today as you celebrate the Lord's table. As a Christian, if you celebrate with this, this, this meager bread or this meager juice, I want you to be reminded that this is Jesus' success on our behalf. Jesus, when he was in the garden, he didn't, he, he didn't pray, Father, if there's any other way, let, it, let this cup pass from me and then run off. No, he said, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Jesus went all the way to death on the cross for our salvation. And then as always, there's an invitation to examine. It says, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And I've said it many, many times. The only way that we're coming unworthily today is to come thinking that we've come worthily. We all have sin. We all have weakness. We all have brokenness that we need to bring before God, receive his grace, and be strengthened by him. Amen? And so in a moment, I'll pray. We're going to begin our time of singing with a familiar song, Amazing Grace. It talks about grace has brought me safe this far. Grace will lead me home. That it's all by his grace, that his grace that brings us into the family of God, his grace that helps us reach the end. And so let me pray, and then when you're ready, you can eat of the bread, drink of the cup, and then join with us. Stand to your feet and sing uh, as you're ready. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. God, we thank you for this cautionary tale in the life of Gideon. God, may we be sobered, but God, may we also be incredibly encouraged knowing that it's not up to us in our own strength to finish well, but God, you have sent your son Jesus to do that on our behalf, and we're grafted into him, and we're invited now to run the race with perseverance because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. God, may we sing and, and respond to you now with great hope and with great joy. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said... Amen.